From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The U.S. Ambassador to Mexico, former Colorado Senator Ken Salazar, joins us from Mexico and talks about efforts to crack down on fentanyl trafficking. And that means stopping the chemical laboratories that are producing fentanyl both here in Mexico as well as some in the United States. Then the evolving use of the drug ketamine. Doctors use it as an anesthetic, but it's been controversial when administered by first responders. Now it's increasingly being used as a treatment for depression and anxiety. Later, we explore the InfoZone in Pueblo, a unique museum about the history of communication inside a library. We wanted to be able to pull items from our local history archives and vaults in a way that hadn't been done before. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. U.S. Ambassador to Mexico Ken Salazar spends much of his time tackling problems that crisscross the U.S.-Mexico border. The former Colorado senator was just in Washington, D.C. to review progress on an agreement between the two countries. It promises cooperation on issues like drug and arms trafficking and human smuggling. I spoke with the ambassador earlier this week. Ambassador, welcome. Thank you very much, Andrea. Good to be on Colorado Public Radio. The meeting you went to in Washington last week was the U.S.-Mexico High Security Dialogue. It was supposed to measure progress on an agreement reached a year ago, cracking down on cross-border crime. And that includes the flow of drugs like fentanyl from Mexico to the U.S. and guns from the U.S. to Mexico. Let's talk about fentanyl first. Deaths from the drug are skyrocketing in Colorado and across the country. People are overdosing and dying. And Mexico Mexico is a prime supplier to the U.S. What specifically have the two countries done in the last year to reduce the flow of drugs, including fentanyl, across the border? So fentanyl is recognized uh, today as uh, being the number one killer of uh, Americans. Uh, More people are dying from fentanyl than from uh, traffic deaths and uh, gunshots in the United States last year. And the same similar phenomenon here in Mexico, where uh, Mexicans are dying because of uh, fentanyl overdoses. So both governments recognize the importance of doing everything we can to stop the uh, growing scourge of fentanyl. And that means stopping the precursors and the chemical laboratories that are producing fentanyl, both here in Mexico, as well as some in the United States. And second of all, many of the precursors come in from China, some of them actually in uh, legal format and then they're transformed over. So we have a major law enforcement effort underway trying to see how we can stop the fentanyl precursors from coming into Mexico. And then how do you stop the drugs from Mexico coming into the United States? So we work uh, with the Mexican government in efforts to destroy the labs that exist in Mexico. 
So the drug trafficking has changed over time. You know, there was a time when there were fields of marijuana and uh, cocaine that you would find uh, cocaine that was being transported throughout Latin America into the United States. That still exists. But what has happened the last several years is that fentanyl has become the number one drug, the number one poison. We work closely with Mexico and on our own in the United States to uh, prosecute and put away transnational criminal organizations that are leading this effort on fentanyl to try to get rid of some of the bad guys that are causing such havoc to the citizens of the United States. Let's talk about how Mexicans see this. When you raise the issue with President López Obrador, for instance, what's his take on the problem? He agrees that fentanyl is a major threat to uh, Mexico and uh, sees the consequences in the United States as well. And uh, his cabinet members, his uh, secretary of state, along with his attorney general, also see it as uh, a number one security problem under our bicentennial security agreement. And so it's high priority. It's a a very complicated issue that involves uh, prevention, first of all, hopefully educating uh, people who would consume fentanyl that uh, they should not be doing it in the same way that we try to deal with other prevention efforts uh, with drug and alcohol. Is there a way to measure progress on that part of this, uh, the addiction part? Well, I think the real marker here is how many people are dying. And there are over, I think it's 107,000 people died last year. And so people in our society have to be educated that taking one of these pills could in fact be their ticket to death. And so that's part of what we're trying to do. And hopefully uh, we'll succeed and people will start seeing uh, the dangers of fentanyl and uh, the consequence that it has not only to themselves, but to society. Let's talk now about another subject of the talks, gun trafficking. Uh, This problem originates in the U.S. where hundreds of thousands of guns a year are smuggled into Mexico. That helps supply the drug cartels with arms. What's being done about that? So guns into Mexico is uh, creating a huge amount of violence on this side of the border, but also on the United States side of the border. So President Biden and members of the House and Senate passed legislation, the Community Safe Act, that uh, makes trafficking in guns a felony uh, with penalties up to 25 years in prison just for one count. So it's, uh, people are going to face prison time for the first time in the history of the United States if they're engaged in gun trafficking. Secondly, we have a strong partnership with the agencies in the United States and Mexico to stop these guns from uh, flowing to the north. So we are investigating and we're prosecuting uh, arms traffickers, both in the United States and here in Mexico, as part of of our effort to break these chains of gun trafficking, which are all involved in um, the security challenges that we see on both sides of the border, involving uh, uh, fentanyl, involving uh, the trafficking of of migrants. And Andrew, just to comment, you know, I've been here only uh, 13 months We had our first security dialogue at the highest levels with about half the Mexican cabinet and the president here and and half the United States cabinet here in Mexico a year ago. We just had that second one, as you commented earlier, in Washington, D.C. And what we're doing is redoubling our efforts to deal with the issue of uh, guns coming from the United States uh, across the border into Mexico. 
On immigration, uh, I want to ask a question about the recent upsurge in migrants from Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. Many of them are seeking asylum in the United States. They're claiming they'll face persecution if they return to their countries. Under the old policies, they could remain in the U.S. while their cases were heard. But during COVID, President Trump invoked something called Title 42, and that's a regulation that allows migrants to be blocked from the U.S. to prevent the spread of contagious diseases. President Biden took steps to rescind Title 42 this spring, but now he's actually seeking to expand it. Can you explain what's happening there? So, Andrew, it's important for everybody to understand the context of uh, migration to get an understanding of these different policies and actions that are being taken. Today, there are about 100 million people around the world who are somewhere on the migrant trail who have been displaced. And here in uh, the Western Hemisphere, we have uh, governments that have failed to serve their people through dictatorships like the ones we see in Nicaragua, Venezuela, and in Cuba. And the endemic poverty that we see in places like uh, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Peru, and other places. Right now, we have seen more migrants uh, on the migrant trail through what they call the land bridge of Central America, crossing Mexico into our northern border than any time in history. And unfortunately, what we have in the United States is a broken immigration system, which has uh, failed resolution since the time before I was in the U.S. Senate. But I remember my time there working with Senator McCain and Senator Kennedy, President Bush, trying to create a framework that's workable. One has not been created yet. And so as a consequence of that, we're dealing with a uh, migrant flow that we are trying to manage in as orderly a, a way as we can. And so with respect to the three countries you mentioned, We've started a project with Venezuela where we have created a program that's a legal pathway for Venezuelans to seek asylum without having to enter the migrant corridor. That program was uh, has started as of today. And so instead of Venezuelans having to put themselves on the dangerous migrant corridor, they should pursue uh, the legal pathway that is being created uh, for them. At the same time, we're looking at the realities of the treatment of migrants along the entire migrant corridor, recognizing that the best one can do is to help with the humanitarian needs and the shelters and joining uh, all of the nonprofits that are helping in, in that arena as well. So we are trying to create regional frameworks for migration, but at the end of the day, uh, the solutions are going to be found when uh, the United States Congress uh, acts on creating the legal frameworks that are required. So what you're saying is that expanding Title 42 is necessary now to stem the flow of migrants. That's right. And it's not just a Title 42 uh, program in and of itself. We also are creating legal pathways to match migrants to places where there is a need for workers. The United States, for example, under our H-2A program for agriculture workers. You know, here in Mexico, I think we processed about 350,000 people. You know, ranchers, farmers, and their Republicans and Democrats and everything in between have always talked to me about the importance of needing good workers. And today in the fields of Colorado, I'm sure uh, I would hear that again. And so we are expanding legal pathways as well to match uh, workers that want to work and are good people 
to places where uh, there is employment. You've talked a lot about the need to collaborate with Mexico, uh, but a few months back, the New York Times cited White House sources. Uh, They were concerned that you've become too close to President Obrador and that these bilateral agreements haven't really achieved much. Can you talk about that and address that criticism? Um, Sure, Andrea. So, you know, I don't pay much attention to what... um rumors are about my job. I, I have one focus, and that's to do a good job to advance the interests of the United States of America. And in my view, I have been doing that on all fronts, economics, uh, creating a more secure border, moving in ways that are totally unprecedented. Nobody thought we'd ever be able to do that on energy, renewable energy and climate change, on development in the southeast uh, part of Mexico and addressing the root causes of migration and addressing the reality that uh, U.S. and Mexico are tied together forever because of our geography, our demographics, and our economic supply chains. So I feel good about what I'm doing. There's always uh, critics, and uh, that's just uh, part of the job. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, uh, Andrea, and I look forward to seeing you back in Colorado. U.S. Ambassador to Mexico and former Colorado Senator Ken Salazar. We spoke Tuesday about efforts between the U.S. and Mexico to crack down on cross-border crimes. Coming up, why Tabor checks are still rolling out. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. ¿Quiénes somos nosotros? Who are we? I mean, now I feel like a Mexican-American man versus just feeling like a part-time Mexican and a part-time white wannabe guy. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast, Quien Are We?, is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. Look for Quien Are We? everywhere you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Just over two and a half million Coloradans have already received a tax refund from the state. The $750 refund comes from the Taxpayer's Bill of Rights, or TABOR. The state collected billions of dollars beyond what it needs to fund itself through the year. And under the state constitution, everything left over has to be returned to taxpayers. CPR's Paolo Shalsada is here to give us an update on how the rollout is going. Hi, Paolo. Good morning. First, can you remind us why this year's TABOR refunds are different from previous years? So thanks to a new law passed earlier in the year, refunds are going out this fall instead of next spring. And instead of refunds being decided on a sliding scale, everyone is getting the same amount, $750. That's everyone. And so the Department of Revenue says two and a half million checks have been processed so far. Do you have a sense of how many refunds are still in the pipeline? There were about 3.5 million people who filed their taxes in time to be eligible for a check, but many of those individuals actually filed jointly with someone like a spouse. So the number of checks to people isn't one-to-one. So far, we know for certain that about 200,000 checks were mailed but have not been cashed. Plus, the Department of Revenue is still processing checks from people who requested an extension to file their 2021 taxes, and we're not exactly sure how many people that is. Hmm. For those folks who haven't gotten their checks, is there a possibility of fraud that their check may have been intercepted somehow? Um, How big a concern should that be? 
Fraud's been a pretty small factor. The Department of Revenue told me there have only been five reports of stolen checks that were deposited by someone else. And fun story, I actually wrote my latest story on this issue because I was unlucky enough to be one of those people. Ugh, um, so how did you realize something had happened to your check? So most people should have re received their check by the beginning of October, which has already passed, but I didn't. So I started to worry, which was compounded by the fact that my apartment complex's mailbox was broken into when checks first began arriving. I checked with the Department of Revenue and gave them my name, my social, social security number, and my date of birth, and they were able to tell me my check was deposited back in August. Obviously, that wasn't me. So that meant I had to get a copy of the deposited check by, by filing a tax form DR-5714, and once that was done, I filed a police report. And after work today, I'm taking all of those documents to my local taxpayer service center, which you can find on the Department of Revenue's website. Will you still get your money? Will other fraud victims still get their money? Yeah, a spokesperson with the Department of Revenue told me that if your check was stolen, you will still get your $750 refund. Now, they aren't exactly sure when that will happen, but the small scope of the problem so far hopefully means it won't be long. So is there a way for someone to check the status of their check and see whether they're in the process of coming through? Yeah, they have a hotline you can call, 303 951 Okay, so that's 303-951-4996. We'll post that in the Colorado Matters podcast as well. Paolo, thanks for being here. Anytime. CPR's Paolo Shalsada with an update on the Tabor refund sent to Colorado taxpayers. Voters will decide soon whether the state should provide free, healthy meals to all public school students. The idea is to limit tax deductions on the richest Coloradans to cover the $100 million a year it'll cost. Here's CPR's health reporter, John Daly. In every public school cafeteria in Colorado during the pandemic, every kid was able to get a free school lunch, not just those from the poorest homes, who qualified for school meal programs, everyone. But the program expired, so a coalition of parents, teachers, and anti-hunger advocates pushed to make permanent, universal free school lunches. Folks like Glenda Rica Garcia. I work for Hunger Free Colorado. I'm a bilingual food assistance navigator. She signs people up for benefits and makes sure they're eligible. I think that the kids being able to eat for free at school is really important for all families, all kids. She's a widow and a single mom of four boys. <laughs> Two of them, Alonzo and Pedro, toss a football around in front of their Westminster apartment building. Garcia was glad when lawmakers put the Healthy School Meals for All proposal on the ballot. Kids can't learn if they don't have good nutrition. If voters okay Prop FF, it would create a program to offer free meals for all public school students help schools pay for them, and incentivize schools to buy Colorado products. That has some families and farmers cheering, but some criticize what they see as a steep price tag for a new government program. Westminster mom Glenda Rica Garcia sees the proposal as a game changer, an equalizer. I was a recipient of uh, free school lunch when I was younger. And oftentimes, before my mom even qualified for that, we didn't have enough for lunch. A family of four making less than about $51,000 a year is eligible for free lunch. But supporters say right now, more than 60,000 Colorado kids can't afford school meals, 
but aren't eligible. Depending on her job, Garcia at times qualified and at times didn't, a blow to her budget. A lot of times it's a financial burden for the parents. Another issue, Garcia says, some kids bully others for getting a free lunch. It happened to her as a kid. It happened to one of her sons. And that just, it hurts my heart. Her son Alonzo says at his high school, some kids avoid the lunchroom rather than admit they qualify for free lunch. Do you think there's a stigma, Alonzo? I think that they get embarrassed because they can't afford it. Colorado agriculture is a key part of the proposal. About 20 minutes east of DIA, hundreds of egg-laying chickens in an enclosure are doing their thing. That's where I met Roberto Meza at his farm. So we're here at Emerald Gardens. The farm is in the town of Bennett. There's several greenhouses here. Meza takes me into one. Sunshine streams in as large fans whir overhead. Imagine children just enjoying the diversity of greens that are available that, that we're able to grow here in Colorado. Super nutritious microgreens fill a series of shelves growing in water-fed trays. We got basil over here. We have some arugula over there. Agriculture can be tough, hard work with lots of variables. The measure would provide grants for schools to buy Colorado-grown, raised, or processed products. If it passes, it would give a solid financial boost for farms like this while feeding kids, Meza says. They're our future leaders, so why not invest in them with the best nutrition possible? Low-income students will still keep receiving free meals whether the proposal passes or not. There's no organized opposition to the measure but it is drawing some opposition. It's a really stupid idea. That's John Caldera, president of the Independence Institute, a libertarian think tank. Its voters guide recommends a no vote. The measure would raise $100 million a year by increasing state taxable income for the three or four percent who make at least $300,000 a year. This proposal is, hey, let's get the rich guys to buy our kids lunch. Back in Westminster, Glenda Rica Garcia disagrees with two of five Colorado families struggling to put food on the table. She says plenty of kids do need this kind of help. They need to eat, period, whether they need the help or they don't. I think that that's the beauty in it because everybody wins. Whether the measure wins will be up to voters. Ballots are going out this month. Election day is November 8th. I'm John Daly, CPR News. To learn more about this issue and other ballot measures and candidates, check out our voter guide at CPR.org. Many voters say they don't fit neatly into partisan boxes. We've been sharing interviews we've done with some of those voters in an occasional series. It's to hear the nuances that drive people's thinking at the polls. To date, a voter whose life experiences have made gun safety and gun access surprisingly important issues this year. My name is Julie Alvarado, and um, I currently reside in Thornton, Colorado. I got married 24 years ago, and my husband was Republican, and, and he just showed me some different things and that I thought were good. And I've been around some people that wrote Democratic, and boy, they are something. But I just feel like Republicans are... They're more to my faith base. I, I'm a member of the Church of Christ. I feel like they're more for helping people and, you know, anti-abortion. I do believe that that is considered murder, and, and that's just my opinion. And so I know that Republicans do feel that way. At least most of them that I voted for have felt that way. 
I worked in the public schools for almost six years. I was uh, working in the kitchen and I loved it. I haven't been able to work because I had COVID last year and I'm still suffering from it. But I worked in the schools and the shootings in the schools is what's really got me in an uproar that the babies can't even go and have an education. That's where I come from with the whole wanting more gun safety. I don't tell a lot of people about it because that's a very, very sensitive subject. You don't want to tell people you want gun control because, you know, the Second Amendment and all. But I do feel that way. I don't know how these folks are getting these guns and how they're doing these things. But that's a problem for me personally. If there's a background check and people are responsible, I think that that's one thing. But just randomly uh, people able to get guns is another thing for me. I don't know what the gun age is right now. Is It should be at least 25. And I say that only because they say that we can't make an educated decision our brain's not fully developed until we are 25. I always tell my kids, you know, guys, you don't, don't get married. You're not even 20. Wait till you're 25 or 26 because that's when you fully know what you're doing. And maybe that's what we should do is wait until they're 25. Until they're old enough to be able to make good decisions. I'm saying this because when I was in school, which was a while back, there was no lockdowns. There was no threat. There was no nervousness about sending your kids to school or your kids being in school. I have six children and they range from the age of 40 down to my youngest just turned 19. I worried about sending my children to get an education. Who's gonna come to the school? What's gonna happen? You know, Columbine. My girls were in school when Columbine happened. They, they were not at Columbine, but they came home. I kept them home for a whole month. It terrified me. Of course, now this is gonna sound contradictory. I hate to say it, but I, I worship with people who carry guns at church. <laughs> They're carrying guns because we have people who are not responsible with guns who might walk in and shoot our congregation. I don't have a problem with the elder of my church who's registered a law-abiding citizen who goes to work every day and comes to church on Sunday and says, listen, nobody's going to shoot my people as long as I'm sitting at the front door. I have grandkids in school, first grade and seventh grade. So that'll be something that I will be listening to about the whole gun thing, if there's any way that it can be prevented. But um, you know how you buy a record? <laughs> And it's got one song you like on it. And you're like, Doug, on it, I got to buy this whole darn record just to get that one song. Well, this is what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking, you know, yeah, I'm going to stop the mass shootings. I'm going to do what I can to do that and this and that. But yet over here, I'm okay with abortion. And over here, I'm okay with gender, this or that. And I'm thinking, okay, then I have to decide what is the most important thing to me, you know? Julie Alvarado, a voter who lives in northern Colorado. Our thanks to Rachel Estabrook and Michael Hughes, who produced that conversation. We'll share more perspectives from other voters in Colorado in the days ahead. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Maria Francesca Cabrini was only 30 when she founded a religious order in northern Italy, but what she really wanted to do was go overseas. Mother Cabrini came to America in 1909 to take care of Italian immigrants, first in New York and Chicago, then in Denver. She bought some land in Golden, cheap, because it did not have water. She reportedly touched a large red rock with her cane, told her religious sisters to dig, and the spring they uncovered continues to produce water today. Cabrini established 67 schools, hospitals, and orphanages. In 1946, she became the first Italian immigrant to be recognized as a saint, soon after named Universal Patron of Immigrants. Seventy years later, Colorado replaced Columbus Day with Cabrini Day, recognizing her kindness and compassion, the country's first paid state holiday to honor a woman. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Sheets and Giggles. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Ketamine has been used by doctors as an anesthetic since 1970, but it's received a lot of attention lately as a therapy for people with anxiety and depression. It's also been abused as a recreational drug, and ketamine has been widely talked about in the death of Elijah McLean. Let's get some further understanding now about the drug. Dr. Andrew Monty is an emergency medicine and medical toxicology physician at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Dr. Monty, welcome. Thanks so much, Andrea. I want to ask you about the different things this drug is used for. You use ketamine in the emergency room. Tell us why you might administer it. Yeah, this is a commonly used medication in emergency departments really across the world. Um, we use this as a sedative in order to allow us to uh, set joints and, and bones when they're broken. That's a common thing that we utilize the drug for. Um, we use it actually sometimes to sedate patients that have agitation or um, psychosis as well. I see. And doctors have used ketamine for 50 years, so I imagine physicians are familiar with appropriate doses. What side effects can it have? Yeah, in general, it's actually a quite safe medication, and that's why we choose it for many of these indications. Um, the medication itself actually has a, a capacity to maintain people's blood pressure and breathing, and that's part of the reason why we use it. However, in rare circumstances, it can cause what we call an, an emergence reaction, where patients come out um, quite agitated as if they're having um, a nightmare when they come out of the, the sedation. It also occasionally will ca cause what we call laryngospasm, which is a spasm of the vocal cords. Those things are actually quite uncommon, and um, they're easily treated in, in an emergency department. Now, ketamine can also have psychedelic effects. Um, do you see that in your patients ever? You know, uh, as patients are coming out of their sedation, um, we do occasionally have them say, wow, you know, I feel like I'm floating and that type of stuff. And so, yes, in some respects, we do see some psychosis as associated with it, but it's actually generally very mild. Let's talk a bit about the Elijah McLean case. Um, in 2019, McLean was forcibly detained by police in Aurora. Paramedics administered ketamine and McLean fell into a coma and later died. The autopsy report was recently amended. It named ketamine as the biggest factor in his death. The city of Aurora settled the suit brought by McLean's family for $15 million, and last year a grand jury indicted three officers who restrained McLean and the two paramedics who gave him ketamine. 
The five will appear in court next month. Um, There's also a fairly new Colorado law that restricts the use of ketamine by paramedics. And I want to note that you're not involved with the legal proceedings, but um, when might it be appropriate for a paramedic to use it? Yeah, the medication can be used by a paramedic when um, the patient is unsafe or the providers, the the EMS providers, are unsafe um, because it actually takes effect rapidly and actually does allow for patients to to be sedated quite quickly. You know, agitation in itself can be quite dangerous, you would imagine, in the back of an ambulance or if a patient is in um, an unsafe place like a roadway. And so you want to be able to sedate people in order to help keep them safe as well as the staff members safe. And if paramedics are restricting, restricted from using it, does that concern you at all in terms of being able to sedate folks who should be sedated? Well, yes, ketamine is another tool in our bag. There are other medications that can be used, but every medication we give has risks, right? There are benzodiazepines, there are other antipsychotics, um, there are opioids, right? We know that opioids, for instance, have quite a risk as well. Same thing with benzodiazepines. Um, The rate of patients being uh, put on a ventilator is about the same for ketamine as it is for benzodiazepines. So yes, it does concern me because these other medications can take longer and actually have their own set of side effects. At the doses administered to McLean, it looks like the amount of ketamine in his blood was much higher than what's considered therapeutic. In your experience, have you seen examples of people dying from large doses of the drug? So no patients administered ketamine in my practice or in our emergency department have died. Um, So this is quite a rare instance that people die associated with ketamine. Um, You know, and I'm not completely uh, convinced that the death in Elijah McLean was due to ketamine. It was actually probably more associated with the restraint there. Ketamine may have played a role, but uh, we know that physical restraint actually is a deadly maneuver, um, and and that's part of the reason why we use sedatives to limit that that adverse event from the restraint itself. So you see, and this will come out in court, uh, that the chokehold might have been the real thing that that killed McLean. But again, that that will come out in court. You know, I would say that. Any form of sedation, even just somebody sitting in a chair, actually decreases the body's ability to breathe. Um, And so when people are tied down or held down and there's pressure on their lungs or their abdomen, then it decreases the body's ability to compensate for fighting back. When you're fighting back, you're making more acid, which makes you have to breathe faster. If you're not able to actually breathe as effectively as you would like, then actually that acid process continues in your blood, and that actually can be quite dangerous. Um, And, you know, we over the years have learned that, and therefore we don't sedate people in the same way uh, that we used to when I was in training in the early 2000s. We'll see how that legal case proceeds. Let's talk now about the use of ketamine for depression and anxiety. It's been approved in a nasal form for mental health treatments. It's also given orally or by an IV. Talk about the latest findings about ketamine's use for this kind of treatment. 
Yeah, this does seem to be a new um, use for this particular medication. And frankly, we need new treatments for this uh, condition, right? For patients that have PTSD or uh, major depression that are, um, you know, un unaffected by the typical medications we have, um, you know, that can be a real scourge on uh, people's lives. So we need new treatments. Ketamine does seem to ha be effective, at least on the short term. We don't have enough data for the longer term um, effects and how long this, this uh, effect is maintained, um, but there does seem to be some good evidence to use ketamine and it improving depression as well as PTSD. For those who try it, do we know what percent are helped? Well, actually, yes. Um, uh, from a depression standpoint, we see that about 50% of people actually have an improvement one or two weeks after use. Um, again, we're not sure exactly how long that effect lasts, but we do see improvement in those patients. And uh, is it the psychedelic part that leads people to feel better when they're treated with ketamine, or is there something else involved? Yeah, that's a great question. And the short answer is that we actually don't know. Um, you know, we do believe that it's through this receptor, the N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor and, or NMDA receptor, that does have a location that reacts to psychedelics, such as PCP or such as LSD, actually. That same rece receptor is involved in, in those types of reactions as well. Um, however, Ketamine works on a lot of different receptors. We know that it also causes um, inhibition of the reuptake of serotonin, for instance, just like the other SSRIs that you hear, like Prozac. Um, so the clinical effect and the pharmacologic effect is quite complex. We're not sure exactly why it works, but it does seem to improve patient symptoms on the short term. And other psychedelics have made the news because of their therapeutic effects. Um, we have a psilocybin measure on the ballot coming up. What about those other drugs that are being used for treatment of mental health? Yeah, we're starting to see more and more studies on this. Um, I'll say that we don't have enough data yet. Uh, as a scientist, you're always going to hear that type of thing. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, us starting to look at these uh, new drugs for these indications is an important step in our in our progression. Um, you know, we also don't know what the long term effects are. Every time we introduce a new drug, there are adverse events, and we just have to realize that. We saw the same thing with cannabis, right? Overall, initially when cannabis was approved, it was uh, reported to be a cure-all, right, and that it have no adverse events. But we now know that cannabis can increase anxiety, increase depression, actually can also uh, lead to cyclic vomiting syndrome. So. Uh, psilocybin, as well as these other psychedelics, are going to have other adverse events. However, there is some effect that seems to improve patients with depression. So we should be looking into that. And with this mental health treatment using ketamine, have you seen any adverse side effects? Uh, we haven't because it's not be, been used really widely in the community yet, right? So, um, you know, we actually don't know uh, what those adverse events will be. It's likely that people will have some effects. You know, we know it increases people's blood pressure, right? So that can increase people's um, risk of heart disease, can increase risk of strokes, right? So we, we have to be cautious about these things and look for these, um, look for these adverse events as we're introducing this as a treatment. And then with ketamine, I, I know it's also called 
called Special K, I believe, and it's been abused as a drug. Um, talk about that a little bit. Yes, absolutely. So the drug's been abused for its uh, psychedelic properties for many, many years, right? So the typical dose of that on the street is um, anywhere from 30 to 60 milligrams um, for, uh, per dose. Um, and yes, you'll hear people talk about uh, being in the K-hole, um, which is really a, a, a psychedelic um, hallucination that they get into. And so yes, this has also caused adverse events you know, people going to raves and things along those lines, just like you would hear about other drugs being used at raves. Dr. Monty, thanks so much for joining us. It was wonderful to speak with you, Andrea. Dr. Andrew Monty is a professor of emergency medicine and medical toxicology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. We've been talking about the drug ketamine, including its use by paramedics in the Elijah McLean case. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Democrats control both chambers of the state legislature, but Republicans see an opportunity this year, from the governor's office to the halls of Congress. The parties are contesting for Colorado's future, and we're covering it every step of the way. Come to CPR News every day for more on Colorado's election, also at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Let's take a trip now to Pueblo, where there's a library. And inside this library, there's a small museum that covers something very large, the history of communication, starting with ancient rocks that have art and carvings on them, going all the way to present day. Think YouTube and TikTok. CPR's Elaine Tassie visited the museum. She spoke with Nathan Heffel. This museum is known as InfoZone. What's it like? How's it laid out? So the museum is about 1,200 square feet, and it's inside the main branch of the Pueblo Library down in Pueblo. Mostly, it's stand-up panels, and they all have interactive features. So in one area, there are some newspapers. They're written in Serbian and all different other languages, and you can read them. And then there's also... Things you can listen to, such as a presidential fireside chat. You just press different buttons and you can get all these different features to come up. Huh. So you got to tour it all with the curator. What's he like? So Nick Potter was the curator and he is a character. (laughs) He was super energetic and very enthusiastic about this exhibit. So he says that the museum recently moved floors. Now it's down on the first floor, much closer to the entrance. And just this month, they had a grand reopening. When we moved it down here, we really wanted to make sure that we married a museum and a library together because that's not a common thing. Can you tell me a little bit about how you went about doing that? What we knew we wanted to do is tell the story of human communication, but through a local and national lens. We also knew that when telling the story with a local lens, that we wanted to be able to pull items from our local history archives and vaults in a way that hadn't been done before. We'll put the JFK pen that he used to sign the Frying Pan Arkansas Project, um, which allowed us to have the Pueblo Reservoir and the Pueblo Dam and really changed our region um, in a very impactful way, just really with the stroke of his pen. And how long did it take you to do it? Um, It took about a little under two years from um, getting funding to opening the info zone. And who did you get funding from? So the Robert Ho Rawlings Foundation provided the funds for this exhibit. And what amount was that? In total, this exhibit is about a $300,000 exhibit. And is it going to be here permanently? Yes, this is a permanent exhibit. 
That's Nick Potter, the curator of InfoZone in Pueblo. It's very cool that they're telling this story with local historical artifacts that you can find in Pueblo. But I want to go way back. The museum starts with this rock art section, and those are rocks with human-made markings on them, petroglyphs, I'd say. What excites you about those? So when you get into the museum, you don't see actual petroglyphs, but you see these pictures of them, and you can press the ones that you would like to look at. Oh, like digital screens. I see. Exactly. And the most fun part that I had was when you look at the petroglyph and you try to imagine what story is being told on the actual rock. So Nick Potter showed me how you can actually click to see Southern Colorado rock art and then compare it to pieces around the country. We try to show things that were really in Los Animas County and in Baca County here in Colorado, so in the southeastern part of Colorado. A lot of our examples here are along the Purgatory River. To me, that looks like a bed with somebody laying on top of it. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? (laughs) I mean, and that's the interesting thing, is that we don't know 100% what they're saying. The great thing about this is that it starts these conversations and it allows us to interpret really, or or try to interpret what they were meaning thousands of years ago when they carved these into the rocks. And I mean, Tassie, that really speaks to the reason for this entire museum interpretation and exploration, doesn't it? So in that vein, what did you look at next? So after the rock art section, we went over to the print section, and that's about the history of newspapers. It starts in 1456 with the movable type press. So my favorite part about that exhibit was when you could look at these different newspapers that were printed in different languages, because in the 18 and 1900s, you know, Pueblo had a population that was really diverse. It's cool to look through all of the front pages of newspapers that existed in Pueblo, but the real impactful thing is that between 1868 and 1976, um, 130 newspapers had been in print throughout Pueblo. The reason for that is that Pueblo had such different pockets of neighborhoods. So you have newspapers that were in Italian, Slovenian, German, Greek. We had Jewish newspapers. I wonder if we can pause here to talk about the role of the library in Pueblo. Is this whole thing an effort to attract more people to the building where the museum is housed beyond a place to simply check out a book? You know, Nathan, that's a really good point. Because now people don't really have to go into the library anymore. You can use Audible to read a book. You can use Google Scholar to do research. So with all those choices, um, this is one way that libraries can remain competitive and relevant. I spoke to a few library experts about that very topic. This is Lessa Palayo Lozada. She's the president of the American Library Association that has over 50,000 members around the country. Libraries right now, especially in the 21st century, are community spaces. And so we're not just book repositories anymore. We're vibrant centers that react to the needs of the community. I also called some libraries around Colorado, and I found out that A Flagler library loans out baking equipment. There's also a library in Lake County that loans out tools. And there's one in Delta County that has a seed exchange program. Denver's library system is now asking voters to approve a tax increase that would be used to provide raises and expand technology and programming, including job centers. It's so interesting how informative all of this stuff is and and the linking of libraries to museums and other ways to get more people into those those physical buildings. So uh, let's go back to the museum in Pueblo. We've heard about the rock 
placard and right. the printed word. Mm-hmm. What about radio? I mean, it's my favorite medium, I got to say. <laughs> yeah, so next we explore the radio portion of the museum. And of course, Nick Potter was telling me about how technology um, has brought the human voice right into people's homes. It also allowed for there to be instant news. So it kind of, in some ways, started that 24-hour news cycle in a way that that, um, newspaper wasn't able to. But then you can come around to the side and you can see some very pivotal moments in radio. One of the ones that you can listen to is FDR's fireside chat. I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. To talk with the comparatively few who understand the mechanics of banking, but more particularly with the overwhelming majority of you who use banks for the making of deposits and the drawing of checks. It's really wonderful thinking about everyday Americans gathering around their huge wooden radio consoles listening to FDR. But, of course, radio gave way to TV in the 50s. So how did the museum highlight that era? Well, the TV section had a lot of different sections to it, but one of the parts that I thought was so funny was this TV dinner ad. You can see Swanson ads here. A Swanson ad for turkey dinner. One triangle with some peas, another triangle with some mashed potatoes, and then what's in that other triangle? Is uh, that the, the meat product? That's the meat product. I'm, I'm not sure quite what it is. I think meat product is probably the best word for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> meat product. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, of course, much of this is historical, uh, but let's bring it up to today. I-, I can't help thinking of the Internet where we spend so much of our time these days. Yeah. And what I like most about that part of the exhibit was how relevant it is to what we do as journalists. Hmm. There's one part of the Internet section of the exhibit that talks about evaluating the accuracy of information that people receive and use online. This is analyzing credibility, basically trying to analyze truthfulness, accuracy, and credibility of different perspectives. Can you identify the source um, to be validated? Yeah, those are things that as reporters we need to be looking at all the time. Mm Everybody is kind of consumed by media. So instead of people being drowned by media in the digital world that they live in, we're trying to provide them tools so they can swim in it. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing this really interesting tour with us, Nick. Of course. Thank you. That's Nick Potter, curator of InfoZone in downtown Pueblo's main library branch. He was speaking with CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassie. Tassie, thanks so much for bringing us along for this tour. Oh, you're welcome, Nathan. CPR's Nathan Heffel, and you can learn more about the museum and see photos at CPR.org. Right now, it's pumpkin spice and fall harvest. But before you know it, you'll be seeing Christmas trees and menorahs, which is why we want to talk about the Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza coming up in December. We recorded on a stage in front of an audience, and we're having a contest to spotlight a musical act specifically from Southern Colorado. CPR's Dan Boyce, who's based in Colorado Springs, and Vicki Greger, longtime music director at KRCC, will help us review the entries. You don't have to be a professional musician to take part. We'd love to hear a song that's representative of the season or even an original song that you might want to share. You can find the entry form at krcc.org. The deadline to enter is October 31st. That's Halloween. Again, the entry form is at krcc.org.
Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Ryan Warner. We'd like to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters or send us an email, coloradomatters at cpr.org. Catch Colorado Matters anytime with our podcast at Apple Podcast and PR One or wherever you get your podcasts and online at cpr.org. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the podcast Colorado Matters. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is CPR News and KRCC.